We are in part seven of our practical faithfulness series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this morning's message is entitled, Faithful to the Faulty. And I want you to all uh, realize that last week was brutal, and the upcoming weeks, we're going to still continue on in some uh, issues that Paul's going to be bringing up, predominantly surrounding the issue of sexuality. So make sure that you prepare your hearts and your family and design about how you're going to be attending church and things like that based on uh, what is to come. Make sure to read ahead, know where we're at. Today is relatively mellow, relatively light. However, there's always adult subject matter when you're talking about Bible stuff. Uh, once again, the Bible is not safe for the whole family. All right, moving on. Uh, I want to begin with this idea I think that all of us can relate to, and I'm going to kind of real quick shoot through some things that I basically consider little soapboxes I stand on all the time when it comes to addressing people, because I believe we have to watch out for our expectations on people at church. So let me begin with this. If you think about how all your uh, church experiences, have you ever had a church experience that was kind of ruined? I want you to think about what ruined it, and I bet you I can name it right now. Uh, If you go through and you go, man, I really, I I walked away from that church hurt and broken because I can tell you what that is. It's kind of magical, right? You ready? Here's the answer. People. (laughs) Right? I'm sure people screwed up your church experience. Uh, Here's the problem with it, is there is no church without people. People are the church. That makes it very difficult to get away from. It is not a building. If this building was empty, it's just a building. The church is God dwelling within his people and them being here. So the very thing that seemed to ruin your experience is the experience. It is the idea that we are all gathered together with all of our dysfunction. That's part of how it goes. So we have to watch our expectations on what we're going to walk into. For example, if you try to run to a church With no people, you're by yourself. That was deep. Did you guys all track on that one? That was heavy. All right, yeah. I'm Captain Obvious today, all right? Uh, Here's the other couple things that we need to remember. We tend to have a million reasons why we do what we do and why we err the way that we err. However, when other people do it, we are very quick to call them an idiot, So, for example, if someone cuts you off on the freeway, you have all sorts of beliefs and judgments about their character. However, when you cut someone off on the freeway, you say things like, man, I didn't even see them there. That's, I was, I was looking in my mirrors and everything and my mind was somewhere else. And man, if the kids would have been ready on time, I would have never done that. And right. And you have a million reasons why you just cut someone off. But if they do it, Man, what a moron. How do they not know how to drive? How old are you, right? We do all this kind of stuff. Why is it that we have so many reasons for why we do the exact identical thing, but yet for them, there must be something wrong with them internally, right? A couple other things that are intriguing is that, and I say this a lot, assuming and stereotyping is much easier when you're dealing with people. Assuming and stereotyping is always easier to do. The problem is it's just not right. That's the, that's the difficult part. Uh, you cannot do that. You cannot broad stroke a group of people, 
please never use the phrase, you people. I don't even know what that means. What do you mean, you people? What, do we all have like a barcode and we all have the same number on it? What, you people doesn't even exist. Uh, for example, they'll say about the church, they'll go, well, you people are all against whatever. I would say we're a pretty diverse group in our thoughts and our beliefs and how we handle things. So we don't like to be broad stroked. So why would you do that to somebody else? Please don't do that. Uh, the last thing that I think that is important when you're dealing with people is I would really like to clarify, and this is, like I said, something I've held on to my entire ministry to try to clarify for people. Please clarify two terms. Hypocrite, inconsistent. They are different. The greatest attack on the people in church that I've heard all my entire life, both inside and outside the churches, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. Sorry, you people are all a bunch of hypocrites, right? Now, are we all a bunch of hypocrites? Well, first of all, I do not believe so. I believe that there is a small portion of us or a very small portion of our lives when we are hypocritical because being hypocritical actually takes some work. And here's why. The very concept of hypocrisy, track it down to its original root word, and it's about wearing a mask. The very premise of hypocrisy is to deceive. If you're not attempting to deceive, you do not have hypocrisy. Hypocrite comes from the very idea of acting, wearing a mask. And the idea is, I'm presenting one thing that you ought to do, knowing full well that in secret I am doing the very same, but I will not reveal that. Therefore, I am condemning you for something I myself am knowingly doing, and I'm presenting as if I am not. That is hypocrisy. Now, that's a lot of work. Most of us are way too lazy to be hypocrites. We are completely content and peaceful being inconsistent. Now, inconsistent is different. Inconsistent means Jesus said this, and I live like this. That's different. I'm not pretending like I am doing that at home. I have not condemned you for something I knowingly do in my heart, and I'm trying to wear a mask. Now, are some of us doing that? Yes. However, all of us are being inconsistent, and that is frustrating to the world and when you see it from the outside. Because what they're saying is, you keep telling me the Bible says this, but you live like this. That doesn't seem right. Well, guess what? It's not right. Of course, it's irritating. Of course, it's agitating. Of course, it's bothersome. It's bothersome to Jesus as well. But what we do not want to do is categorize it as something that it's not. We are being inconsistent. And what I found is that you can't have church without people. You can't have people without dysfunction. It leads all the way to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, which is simply this. Part of discipleship is working with broken people. Part of discipleship, part of the process by which God is making you into his image, that the Holy Spirit is transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ, Taking out sin, throwing out the garbage, reworking, refashioning, working from the inside out, however you want to look at it. Part of that process is putting you up against broken people. You are broken to them. They are broken to you. When you walk in with those expectations, it makes a lot more sense. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we can begin reading through God's word. Let me recap where we're at. Last week, Paul 
blew everybody's minds with this massive correction, all the way to the point of discussing the issue of excommunication in the church. He is on a discipline rant to be able to tell this church, listen, I know you think you're all that. I know you think, oh, we're the biggest, baddest church. Look at all the spiritual gifts that we have. God must think that we're the best and we're a shining example. Well, as a father, Paul is not interested in the shine on the outside. He's interested on the heart on the inside. He is coming in with discipline and saying, you know what? You're not even paying attention to stuff that God cares about. You are way out of line here, 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 and here. So he is now continuing that process to correct the Corinthian church. But one thing I need you to see is that his underlying tone in all of his correction is not, hey, you guys, just try harder. It's not that. And you need to be very careful when you try that tool on yourself. You know what, man? I'm not, I'm not living like Jesus. I just got to try harder. That's probably not the answer. The answer can be train differently. The answer can maybe be train harder. The answer can be a bunch of different things. But just merely trying to be a better person doesn't work. If you're wrestling with your sin nature and trying to lean towards God, the answer is not merely just to try harder. We need to get our minds wrapped around other things. And Paul tends to start all of his discipline at the issue of please revisit who you are in Jesus. Start with your identity and move from there because most of the problems we're wrestling with is that we're not living the life that Jesus bought for us on the cross. We're just going to be in 11 verses this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11. Let me read through it. We'll pray for the word, then we'll tear it apart. Ready? Here's what it says. I'm in Romans. <laughs> I was like, that didn't look right. Here we go. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even to your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some were such as you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray about it. Heavenly Father, we come to you in our crazy dysfunction. We come to you in our mixed up minds, Lord, not knowing 
quite what's wrong with us, knowing full well that we are bent even as redeemed peoples. We seem to run back into the very cage you broke open, put the chains back on that you broke, and Lord, we wallow in the mud while you have set us free. I don't know why necessarily, Lord, that I personally continue to do that. Lord, we know better. We know right. Please remind us of our identity. Remind us on what grace means, not just for us, but pouring through us to other people. And Lord, allow us to know to know you better, to know through your eyes this world better. Clean us up in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins with this. Go back to verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, pause, and you will. I mean, that's assumed, right? I mean, that's kind of the point, is that we're going to agitate one another. You're broken, I'm broken. You think we don't have rough edges? Of course we do. That's what's going to happen. Now, uh, it appears that the ESV that we're reading from, that version of the Bible, has translated it one another as if it's only Christians to Christians. However... The Greek version of that is saying just to anyone, if you have a grievance against anyone, meaning a believer or a non-believer. However, the ESV is saying in context, as you see, it's largely going to be dealing with people within the church. So it says, when you have a grievance, and we're talking about any problems, and I want you to think more property civil cases. You agitated me, you defrauded me, you hurt me, you stole from me, whatever it is, right? Uh, Just even be thinking about, hey, we got in a car accident in the parking lot, right? We know that it was another believer. We crashed into their car and we're just agitated. Why would you be such an idiot to do this? How would you hit my car? I love that car. That's my favorite, right? I restored that. How dare you scratch the paint, right? We get all personal. You know what? You're paying for it all, and it's an exorbitant fee. And so the other person says, you know what? That was a complete accident, and there's no way I'm going to try to give you more money than what it's really worth, and you get into a dispute. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. This is not criminal matters. This is not a, you know, you came in and robbed my house, and that should be handled within the church. Uh, The Bible is very clear that the court system and the authorities are set up by God for a criminal situation and some civil cases. The Bible is not anti-court. The Bible is anti-handling grievances in a certain fashion. So let's keep moving forward. When something like that happens, does he dare go to law, go to the court systems before the unrighteous? Instead of the saints, why are you running to the world to solve your problems? If we claim to have the truth in Jesus Christ, we have the word of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Why are you running to the world to get their opinion of what's right and wrong? We're the ones consistently every other time telling them that they need to see it like we do. If we're always trying to tell them, man, you need to be reading the Bible then why are you turning around and going to them for matters of law saying you guys really know what's right and wrong? You tell us. You just reverse the whole process. Why would you do that? All right. This would be an odd message if I just wrote this to Bridgeway. Let's say I write a letter. It's first Bridgeway or whatever, you know, right? And I write the letter and I start talking about lawsuits. 
I currently do not know of any of you in a lawsuit against one another. I actually have no knowledge of that whatsoever. Is it happening? Probably. In a church of this size, we probably have multiple lawsuits going on, not necessarily with each other, but maybe with other believers. So I'm not saying it doesn't apply. But in that culture, in Corinth, this was a massive issue. Let me explain why. Now, when I went back and started doing research, I realized that everybody pulled all their research from one guy. William Barclay decided to do all his homework, and everybody ripped him off. All right? What he did is he went back through and did all the study about Athenian law in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Now, when you go back through, this is what you find. First of all, Paul comes from a Jewish point of view. The Jewish rule was it was against the law to go to the law of a non-believer. It's blasphemy against God. You are dishonoring Jew, uh, you're dishonoring the Jewish world. It should be handled within tribal, within family, within the community, within the synagogue. Don't you dare dishonor the Lord by going to the pagans. So Paul comes from a Jewish mindset where he grew up that you would never do that. Now he walks into a church that is not just Jewish, but it's also mixed with what? Gentiles, non-Jews. They grew up totally different. In the Greco-Roman world, Greece going into Rome, legal matters were a big deal. And here's why. Remember I told you a number of weeks ago that they loved hearing people talk. It was about the philosophers and the guys who could spin things and argue stuff they didn't even believe in. That was their form of entertainment. They would go away from a theater just to go hear a guy talk rhetoric. They were so fascinated with how words and arguments and everything else happened that they used that as their primary entertainment. Now, where do you argue more than in court? Right? That's the centerpiece. So they developed this massive system by which everyone in society was involved in the legal process. Here's how it would work. Okay, let's say Jay. I'm going to pick on Jay because he's sitting in the front row. Let that be a warning to everyone. But Jay's cool with it now. We've been friends for too long, so he's allowed to. So let's say, Jay, you're of course in the wrong. Is that cool? All right, good. Let's say that Jay is the one that crashed into my car, and I'm the one that called him names. Now, what happens is in the ancient uh, world, we would automatically go out and we would select an arbitrator in public. They had a ton to choose from. We would go hire one, he'd hire one, and then we had to pick one that we agreed on that would be the judge over the whole situation. My guy argues against his guy, and the judge makes the ruling. If we do not like that... We go to stage two. Stage two means we go before the 40, which is a council. They select an arbitrator to review the case. They go over the whole thing again. And if that doesn't work, we then take it to a jury process. The jury process for matters that, as far as I can estimate, are about 70 bucks or less. I mean, it's, it's really kind of embarrassing. Is a jury of 201. That's a big jury. Anything over that amount is 401. That's a massive group of juries. Now, as you begin to add on all the numbers I'm about to spin to you, you'll see why everyone's involved in the legal process. That jury and all juries in the Athenian world are made up of male adults 30 years and over. 
They are the jury pool. When you're selected for jury, you are paid for your time. You are called in the mornings, and they select your cases by lot. You are always available to be on the jury. However, in certain matters that are a bigger deal, extreme cases, they have had juries up to 1,000 people jury to 6,000 people juries. Right? Those are all on record. When you go to the highest level, you ultimately run into these other arbitrators who, if you are 60 years old in Athens, your whole year is on duty as an arbitrator. So as long as you're 60, from 60 to 61, you are the major pool. All right? So everyone then, when they were not on jury duty, they would all come and watch. So the whole system was designed to argue at all times. If you grew up like that, you think you're not bringing that into church? Any problems you've ever had automatically go into an argument. So you're going to bring all that in. You're going to be sitting there talking about it all the time. Oh, wait, why did you do that to me? I'm going to go get an arbitrator, right? You immediately go your route. Yet the Jewish people are going, we don't do that at all. And there's a clash. That's why he has to write about it. If we don't know that context, it doesn't really make sense. Well, why are you talking about that? It's a big deal. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Pause. Did you know that? It's kind of weird, actually. I, I still can't quite get my mind around it. I've studied this a number of times. I'm very clear that the Bible says that we will. The Bible says it in Revelation and a bunch of other places where it says, he who endures to the end will be with me on the throne and he will judge over the nations. I, I don't fully know what that means. It can either mean at the end times when Jesus Christ judges the world, because we are in union with him, we too will judge the world. Or it's referring to the millennial kingdom. When Jesus sets up his authority on earth, there's a thousand year reign of Christ People are born during that time, and we as believers who are reigning with him rule over that time. Don't know how it all works. Ultimately, if all Christians are reigning and only Christians are left, who are we reigning over, right? It starts getting a little bit complicated. Now, he seems to say like they all knew that. He already taught them that. He already trained them in that. He already said, listen, your identity is such that you will handle eternal matters. If that's the case, and if the world's to be judged by you, what are you, incompetent to try trivial cases? You can't handle this. You can't handle a crash in the parking lot. Seriously, you're going to be talking about eternal destinies and what's going on in the world by being seated with Christ. And we can't figure out how to handle a problem. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Oh, stop. What? Why are we judging angels? What angels are we judging? Right? Do we mean like the devil and his angels, they're ultimately going to be thrown in the lake of fire, we're standing with Jesus, we pronounce judgment on him. Is that what we're talking about? Or is there more to it? Is it suggesting that because we are the redeemed, now understand, angels are not redeemed. Angels do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit the way that we do. That's what makes it so unusual. We were a fallen people. We were redeemed and indwelled by the very Spirit of God, angels our ministers on God's behalf to us. Does that mean that in some way, shape, or form, in our glorified state, we then become the rulers over the angelic realm? I don't know. I don't know how that all works out. But what's the point? Do you understand how 
high our calling is, how high our identity is in Jesus. So he makes this point. How much more then are you to judge matters pertaining to this life? See, I don't think that we get what it means to be a believer. I think we have really settled for the idea of, I get I was going to hell. Jesus saved me. Now I'm not going to hell. Yay. I think that's pretty much our Christianity. Right? And you know what? We're like, no, that's seriously, that's important. I'm gr- granted, eternal torment, escape, yes. Very significant. However, I don't believe that's it. I don't believe that's the whole point. I don't believe that's all of Christianity. I think that our identity as a son and daughter of God is extreme, high, and noble. And I don't think we believe it. And I don't think we live like it. And I think that's part of Paul's stress as he's talking to them. Let's pick it up in verse 4. He said, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why are you asking the world's opinion? Now, I say this to your shame. This makes me laugh because in chapter 4, verse 14, he goes, I'm not saying this to shame you. Here he's like, no, seriously, I'm trying to shame you. You feel shame? Good, because that's what I'm trying to do. I say this to your shame. Can it be, and this is his gift of sarcasm being exercised, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Are you that inept? You seriously can't solve this one. But a brother goes to law against a brother. The first tragedy is you're ripping apart the family. No, we don't fight like that. We settle things. We work it out. We bring it to mom and dad. We kind of talk about it. Use your words, right? We all know this stuff. And then the second tragedy is you're doing that in front of unbelievers. You just screwed up your entire testimony. You're doing all this arguing in front of the world. You're ripping each other to shreds and the world's looking at them going, look at these idiots going at each other. Oh, look at them. They're the high and mighty ones. The ones that are always telling us what to do and all that stuff. They're in my courtroom. And look at them go at each other. This is embarrassing. Oh, Jesus has made a huge difference in your life. Right? To have lawsuits at all with one another, that's already defeat for you. The fact that we let it go that far, seriously. We are not submitted to Christ enough to be able to handle issues. Our love is not high enough to extend grace. We are not able to talk. Is that what you're telling me? The fact that we are going to lawsuits is embarrassing. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You don't want to go for the higher thing, right? You want to go for the lower thing. You want to win. Is that what you're telling me? You want to get back at them. Oh, I see, and that's going to get you what? Let's say you get all your cash back, right? I finally crush Jay in court. I finally, because now it's personal, right? Now it's an entitlement. You messed up my car. I'm entitled to that right. And you know what? So we go before court, uh, before unbelievers, and I just pummel him into the ground, and I get all my money and a little bit more back. Now what? Is that going to buy back the testimony? Is that somehow going to glorify God? Is that what I just got? Oh, I got what was due me, right? Let's say I was right. Let's say I even got what was legitimate at what cost. Did I just allow Satan to drag me in Jesus' name through the mud? Is that what just happened? Oh, you got your cash, but now what? You yourselves... 
Listen, it's not like everybody's innocent on this one, verse 8, he says. You yourselves wrong and defraud. You're the problem. You're causing this chaos. You're doing it to your own brothers. Listen, clearly everybody is not operating like God takes this stuff seriously. So let me put out a list, and this is one of many lists in the Bible, that talks about the standard lifestyle behaviors of those that are yet to be redeemed by Jesus. This is not a list of if you mess up in these areas, you're going to hell. That's not this list. Can we be very clear on that? Because this list is scary. It says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're like, well, they're not going to heaven. Yeah, that's the point. However, what are we talking about when we say this list of people, these types of things? It is not, man, do you struggle in this area? God hates you. That's not it at all. That's not in this list. What this list is, is it's saying if we're examining the fruit to find out what kind of tree it is, if this fruit is being produced, it's not this kind of tree. If your life is dominated by these things that are far more important than Jesus, has he yet to rescue you? That's the question. And then he goes through a list. And we go through this list and we always love to hunt through and we pick up on some where we go, ooh, that's serious. And we blow by all the others. So let's talk about it. Here's the list. He says, do you not know? That the unrighteous, those that are not justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, you're not going to get to heaven because you do good stuff. You get to heaven because Jesus Christ died for you. That's it. They are not going to hell because they do bad stuff. Doing bad stuff is consistent with human nature. They are going to hell because Jesus has yet to wipe it clean. That's all. Because this is us. But many of us have been wiped clean. That's what we need to realize. Do not be deceived. Don't think otherwise. Don't think that God doesn't think to take this stuff seriously. Neither the sexually immoral will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the word pornos. Now, what's so intriguing about that to me, and maybe I'm making more of it than should be, but this is that word, um, it kind of comes from pornea. Remember I told you, that's that big, huge term that kind of, is the general broad term for all sexual immorality. So fornication, adultery, all that stuff. What I found that was interesting is when you go further back into where the word came from, it has the, the word commerce. And you're like, commerce? That's like buying and selling. What does that have to do with sexuality? You go, well, are you talking about prostitution? I'll get there. Is that involved? Probably. But here's what I find so intriguing. I wonder whether or not the issue of sexuality and commerce always go together because we're really good at using each other right so we use each other sexually and we use sexuality as a bidding tool we use it as a bargaining chip and we consistently involve give and take through this process and so when he talks about it he's saying listen you're using each other and i'm not all right with that neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters now Let's talk about idolatry for a minute, because it's one thing that makes God throw up. He's really not all right with this. It's in the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. So what's idolatry? Well, in the old school world, it was very easy to tell, because literally they would shape and have made or purchase an image of the God they wanted to serve. Now, we all want a God we can control. 
Why? Because ultimately he's going to get in our face and he's going to tell us to change and we don't like change and that gets irritating. So you, of course, don't want to serve the all great God. You want to be able to serve something that you can put on the mantle or take off, right? If he ever gets personal in your life, you want him to back off. So they would shape an image into this is the fish God, this is the cow God, this is this God, and they all represented something. Well, let's say we did that. Let's say we shaped and put together things in our lives into a physical representation. You go, what? I don't want a fish God. No, no, no. Idolatry is anything that takes Jesus' spot. So what's that for you? If you said, Lord, I would totally serve you right now, but I'm busy doing this or my heart's here, whatever that is, that's your God. So let's say we quantify that. Let's say we make that and shape that into an idol, right? We got materialism idol, right? We got pleasure seeking idol. We got sexual issue idol, right? We have body image idol, we got all these different idols. Yeah, you got them all lined up on your mantle. And I could walk in. I'm like, dude, I got a couple of those too. Man, look, I got that one and that one. It's like a collection. I'll trade you for that one, right? And we have all these idols listed up on our mantle. That makes God nauseated. So I know that we all think that it's only ancient world. I mean, it was so overt that Corinth was surrounded, all their hills, by temples. They had idols everywhere. The temple to Aphrodite and all these huge, massive places. It was overt there. Here we just carry it with us at all times. Yeah? Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers. That is moikos in Greek, and it means anyone that's in, that's in a marriage bond that has sex outside of that bond in some way, shape, or form. Nor men who practice homosexuality. Um, we're going to pause here because... This is a massive issue, the issue of homosexuality. Um, and let me use the context first. When I went back and was doing an examination on this term, I found out it's actually two terms. And I didn't understand why the commentators were doing that because I looked and it says, men who practice homosexuality, that's just one phrase, but it's two words. In Greek, it has an active role in homosexuality and a passive role in homosexuality. One term means Soft and effeminate, given over to passion. The other one talks about an aggressive issue and may well talk about the act of uh, prostitution, male prostitution. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on behind these things. Male bed partners is ultimately what it says. But in order to understand this, because I will suggest to you, not only do we not understand what the Bible says, you go, I know what the Bible says about homosexuality. Guess what? No, you don't. Yeah, I do. No, you don't. Why? Because I don't fully understand the Bible. And I'm studying this stuff backwards and forwards. I will tell you this. There is no topic going on in the world today that has so dominated my thoughts as this issue. Why? Because it's the next huge tsunami to hit the church. If you think, well, I'm going to avoid it. I'm really uncomfortable talking about that. You're done. Because it is a massive issue rising up in our whole society and it will sweep over the entire church and you go well man that's that's going to be a rough day you know and gosh i I don't you know it's an interesting thing it hasn't entered the church yet what's that that's funny you're about a decade late all right it's been in the church as long as people have been in the church and here's the deal my heart for the gay community is extreme 
my compassion and my love and my desire to minister to them is extreme. And I need you to understand that. Do I know my Bible? Yeah. Am I doing more study into my Bible? Yes. Am I clarifying and sorting through? I can tell you the extreme lengths that I've gone to try to sort this issue out. Why? Because I want to honor Jesus in every step of the way. And I want to love on everyone I possibly can. That's the way it goes, right? Amen. Uh, part of this process, and I'm continuing to do a lot of work on this, but part of the process for me to understand all the passages is I even went and listened to the whole other side of the issue for an eight-hour conference, had them share their side, and listen and study and work and work and work. Do I get it? I get it. Is it complicated? Yes, it is. Is it heartfelt, heart-tearing? Yes, it is. And that's why it's a big deal. Here's my biggest problem with this issue on how the church has to react to it. Is you ultimately come down to this. What does Jesus like more, holiness or love? And you go, well, holiness is his nature. Love is his nature. You tell me, which part of his nature is he willing to ditch? The issue to me is, God says they will be known by their love, and yet it's the one thing the church seems to be known not being loving for. So all of a sudden we're in a big predicament and we're in a big problem. So we're trying to navigate through that. But let me get back to the text. The text is important to address this issue in Corinth for a couple of reasons. Let me tell you what it's like in ancient Greece. Is everybody familiar with a guy named Plato? Yeah? Socrates. Got it? Both promote homosexuality. The very shapers of all Greek world were proponents of homosexuality to a great degree. When the Greeks handed off to the Romans, not willingly, when the Greeks handed off to the Romans, the emperors stood up. 14 out of the 15 Roman emperors were either homosexual or bisexual in nature. That's all of them but one. The current reigning emperor at the time this letter was written was Nero. We're familiar with him. He had a boy lover by the name of Sporus, whom he had castrated, then had a public wedding for, and did a huge ceremony through the very center of the empire. And that was his wife, one of his wives. It was a big deal. When the next emperor came in, the first thing he was to do was publicly marry the boy all over again. Emperor Hadrian had a boy, Antonus, who he had as his wife, that when that boy died, he was deified publicly, his statues were put everywhere, and a star was named after him. What you need to realize is that homosexuality was absolutely 100% through the region. In Corinth, that's right next to Athens, is the idea that they would have it in all the temples, and it was a day-to-day, everyday activity. So, now Paul goes in and he goes, we need to begin to sort. We need to talk about what's going on in our world. He cannot skip over it, nor will he. Right? So he moves on, verse 10. Nor thieves, kleptos, we all know that word, the kleptomaniac thing, right? It was so bad in their realm that for... I think it was something like $10 or more, it was a crime punishable by death. You steal $10 or more, you're done. We'll just kill you because we have to get rid of it. Nor the greedy, pleonectes. Listen to this definition because I thought this was powerful. 
a spirit that is always reaching for more and grabbing for that to which it has no right. Aggressive getting to spend on its own pleasure and taking advantage of anyone who can get them there. Does that not sound like what caused our recession? I mean, are we all tracking on this? That's greed. Greed will ultimately eat us alive. And then we go through, we say, nor the drunkards. That word is methos. It means uncontrolled drinking. That is the dominant influence of your entire life. Nor revilers. Let's pause right there. Did you go through this list and highlight a couple out that you thought were particularly bad? Shocking. Did you like, oh my, see, I knew that God didn't like this stuff. Blah, blah, blah. This word is slanderers. You a gossip? Guess what? You make God throw up too. We have this tendency to pick and choose all our little sins. Oh, well, this one is this and this one is this. Did you read the list? Because guess what? The folks that are assassinating other people's character in the quiet will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we breeze over that. Oh, man, I do that in my prayer requests all the time. Right? Well, you, you hey, man, you got to be praying for so-and-so because you know what, what they're going through? Did you just use Jesus' name to gossip? Is that what I just heard? Be very careful on that because he's laying out and he's going, listen, if the entire of your life is you're completely comfortable and free slashing other people with your tongue, I'm not quite sure Jesus has yet got to the root. I don't know if he has you yet. Picks it up, nor swindlers. That is the word harpax, grasping with savage ferocity. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then just as if they were going to be like, yeah, he drops the next bomb. And such were some of you. Now, what's so intriguing about that is they were so cocky and arrogant about how great they were. He shuts them down right here. And here's what's funny about it. Why did he select that list? Because each list in the Bible is different. They're samplings. They're not full, complete lists. So why did he pick those? Here's my guess. He knows Corinth well enough to know a name that is associated with every one of those. Rick, Jim, Mary, Frank, the whole time he's tracking them off. He's going, you think you guys are all high and mighty? You think that this isn't your problem? You know full well that was you about five days ago. So as far as having this great judgment that no one else, you know, oh, they're all the bad people and we're all the good people. Hold on. That's not true. This is us. We're all in this boat together. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. I mean, we can also play the other game where the enemy comes up and goes, you'll never be anything but that. That is not correct. I am not that now. Why? Because it says you were washed. You were spiritually cleansed. In Jesus Christ, you were sanctified, separated out for God. You were justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God. And you were made so in the name by the authority of the Lord and Master Jesus Christ, the Savior, who died to secure it, and by the Holy Spirit of our living God. Therefore, when the enemy tries to come up and tell you that you will never be anything but that, you throw back in his face the cross. You tell him, I am not that. That is what my flesh wants to be. I am telling you right now, that is not me. That is not the sum total of me. 
And my Jesus, he who began a work in me, will be faithful to complete it. And I am not there yet. I still struggle. I still wrestle. I still have pain. I still have insecurity. I still have all this kind of chaos in my life. But you know what? My Jesus rescued me and he's making me new. He's making me different. Amen? When we allow that grace to wash over us, we then can extend that grace to other people because you realize he's not done with them either. He's still working on them. He's still bringing them to himself. Therefore, as we close out, we're going to be passing out. And I think uh, we didn't get the cards passed out to you yet, right? No, we're going to have our team as we're closing pass out cards. Just take one, pass it down the aisle. We're going to be passing out some cards for you to keep. But I'm going to pray for us today, and then I'm going to give us our closing challenge. Heavenly Father, Lord, the enemy has waged war upon us by making us think things about ourselves that are not true. That, Lord, that he has blocked out the grace from our minds that you lavished upon us. Lord, he has blocked us from our identity in you and who you have made us to be. Lord, I pray that if there are any here, that do not yet know you, would you wash them and sanctify them and cleanse them and justify them? Would you allow them to know you in a personal way and not allow the enemy to beat them up anymore? And Father, for those of us that are here that have trusted you and surrendered to you, Lord, would you make us new? Would you refresh us and change us from the inside out? Would you pour out your grace in a way that we can see it so that we might be able to model that and pour it out to everyone around us. Lord, would you change us in Jesus' name? Amen.